0: Please continue to stand and take out your Bibles as we read from Acts, chapter 23, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, 35. This is the word of God. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the consul tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire Somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man and charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen." And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there might be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night. Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks letting the horsemen go on with him when they had come to caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor they presented paul also before him on reading the letter he asked what province was he from and when he learned that he was from cilicia he said i will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive and he commanded him to be guarded in herod's praetorium here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated.
1: Let's ask the Lord for his help before we
0: hear from him this
1: morning. Lord God, grant us illumination of this your word by the presence, power of your spirit, through me, enable. Your word to be declared with power, to be received according to your grace, the building up of the saints. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, We continue our exposition, the book of Acts, here in chapter 23. um, Luke's account, Luke is the author, um, his his account um, of the progress of the testimony of the apostle Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. Our subject for today is sovereignty in conspiracy. It's the title of the message. Sovereignty in conspiracy. Observing once again the truth of Romans eight twenty-eight, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Or to put it in the words of the Old Testament, Isaiah 46 verse 9, I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning, says the Lord, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Friends, that is to say, God is absolutely sovereign. The psalmist in Psalm 135 verse 6 states, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and In earth. Now, the absolute sovereignty of God over all things past, present, and future um, is an attribute of God that is not equally precious to all believers. Especially his sovereignty. In the salvation of individuals. Especially in his sovereignty over the salvation of individuals. But that, however, you can be at ease this morning. That, however, is not the facet of God's sovereignty of which we observed this morning. Instead, in context to this passage, we will consider God's sovereignty over life's situations. God's sovereignty over life's situations because without a sound that is biblical understanding of God's sovereignty over life's situations, most of us would be in absolute despair. And I do believe that the longer one walks with the Lord... True believers who walk with the Lord, the longer we walk with him, the more we grow to love this attribute of God. Seasoned saints, understand it, embrace it, see it as more precious than do a a three, four, five, six, or seven-year-old. But as they come to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, they too we'll see this attribute is very, very precious. In the course of our lives, as God manifests his love toward us, he wants us to love him more and more. He loves us first, and we reciprocate that love. And we grow to appreciate his character and his attributes more and more. It's part of... His grace in sanctification. And that's possible only when the events of our lives are brought under the scrutiny of God's Word, His Bible. That is who he is. He is a sovereign ruler over all events. and Paul the Apostle right here, he, he believes that. He trusts in the sovereignty. Of God. Now, I read from Jonah chapter 1 and 2 um, earlier um, to serve as a contrast. To serve as a contrast between Jonah's disobedience and Paul's obedience in delivering God's word. In the fact that God His preordained sovereign will, that is, will be worked out providentially regardless of what his people do or do not do. You see, Jonah, it's not a matter of him not believing in the sovereignty of God, not believing in the authority of God. The problem was he did believe it. He did know it, and that's why he ran. He refused to bring God's word to a people he hated, the Ninevites. God got him there, didn't he? And what happened? God's will was done. Paul, he understands it, this attribute of God. He he, he is resting in it. He's cool. He's calm. He's collected. And he knows, as I wanted to preach in Jerusalem, I also wanted to preach in Rome. And God has guaranteed that I will get there. But not without trouble. Not without tribulation. Not without trials. Now, remember where where Paul is. Um, The Asian Jews in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost recognized Paul in the temple courts. They stirred up the crowd, they seized him, they attempted to kill him. Chapter 21. Roman soldiers intervene according to the sovereign decreed will of God played out by way of his providence. He's under protective custody. He's delivered from being murdered. Paul asks for permission to to speak. He then speaks to the very people who wanted him dead. He speaks in the Hebrew dialect. They, they pay close attention. They listen intently until... He says, I was met by the resurrected Messiah, and he told me he would send me to preach to the Gentiles, and the Jews come unglued because they hate Gentiles. The Roman, the Roman Tribune, the commander... He wanted to get to the bottom of the matter, so he, he grabs Paul, he brings him in, and rather than giving him any kind of Miranda rights, he said, Let's just scourge the guy, we'll ask questions later. So, as they're stretching him out to scourge him, Paul says, Hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And uh, the commander there, the Roman soldier, uh, uh, nearly goes into cardiac arrest. For to scourge a Roman citizen without trial, without one who has been condemned, um, means your head comes off. The commander says, Nah, let's send him back to his people. Sets him before the Sanhedrin. Paul masterfully now sets them against themselves. Divide and conquer the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees who believe in the resurrection, Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. I heard this joke years ago to remember the difference. The Pharisees, you see, it's, it's far I see, resurrection. But the Sadducees, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. A dissension erupts. Verse 10 Uh, When the dissension became violent, the commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, ordered the troops to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Okay, there's Paul in Jerusalem, and all the world seems to be plotting against the man with the Asian Jews frustrated in their attempts to lynch him. You see the frustration of the Sanhedrin, unable to convict him in order to kill him. And then the Romans, beside themselves, due to his Roman status, the world is against the man. The ministry and the life of the Apostle Paul is very much like that of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're both Jews They're both preachers of God, both were rejected by their own people, both had murder plots against them, both stood before the Sanhedrin, both were prisoners in Fort Antonia. Paul knew, to say the least, the sufferings, the fellowship of sufferings of his Lord Jesus Christ like no man that has ever lived. Agree with that? You can say amen. In those who don't agree, I'd like to know who comes close to comparing to the man. So the next morning, the next morning after all of this, um, a group of Jews make an imprecatory oath. Um, That is, they're prepared to die as they carry out this oath, and it's fulfilled. That is a plot, that is a conspiracy to kill Paul, and they go on an intense diet. Pauline diet, we would call it. <laughs> verse 12. <laughs> when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now, Luke um, emphasizes how serious this is as he repeats it. We see it here in verse 12, repeated again in verse 14, and then in verse 21. Um, and you got to ask, why Why is Paul such a threat to these furious men? You know, when we read history and we read tradition with regard to the Apostle Paul, um, he, he's not a very intimidating figure. He's anything but threatening. We read that he was very short in stature. He had a, you know, a hooked nose and, and he was a bull-legged little fella. Not large. He was not an intimidating man, but his ideas were. The gospel of Jesus Christ that he preached, that was an offense. That was intimidating. His love for Christ is what brought about this kind of animosity, hatred, and violence. Men left to themselves hate God. We hate God. God until God gives us life, regeneration. Takes out a a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Well, I never hated God. Well, the fact that you used to say, well, I believe God is like this. That's a sign of hatred toward God. Don't fool yourselves. We hate him. Men, left to themselves, hate God. And here they hate those who represent God No one more than the apostle Paul. Now, remember on the night before all of this, verse 11, the Lord stood at the side of Paul. He stood at his side and he said, Take courage, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Guess what? His will will be done. Therefore, go ahead, take this number, 40 men. Go ahead, take the 40, times it by 100, times it by 100,000 with Satan behind all of it. It doesn't matter how many people want him dead and all the, the attempts of Satan behind it. Guess what? It's all futile. He's going to Rome. God declared through the prophet Isaiah chapter 43 at verse 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Not a soul. No spirit. No man. His will will be done. Psalm 37 and verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. What does the Lord do? He laughs at him. He laughs at him for he sees his day is coming. You know what Luke shows us here? Beloved, living in the 21st century, he shows us here that hardship and trouble are normal parts of life. But we can always, as God's people, count on his presence. Always. Paul, I'm with you. You know when they were beating you? You know where I was? I was with you. When you were put in chains, you know where I was? I was with you. Those times you've been locked up in jail, I was with you. You're beaten with rods, I was with you. You were almost scourged, I was with you. When you were born a Roman citizen, because of... Of of the reputation of your father and your grandfather, I was with you. Verse 14. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation and we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he even gets close. These are the guys in our day who who, who strap explosives to themselves as an oath to their false god. These Jews... These Jews serve a false God. Jewish people today, Orthodox Jews, serve a false God. You reject God's Messiah, you reject God. Okay? I know Christians today, they're Zionists, and they say, well, the Jewish people, those are our brothers and sisters. No, they're not. Read your Bible. You reject Messiah, you don't worship God. We understand this? Let us understand. So this is the most radical way they knew to take a vow like this. In our day, blow stuff up. Blow yourself up. Here, let's starve ourselves until we kill them. And they invoke the vengeance of God until they accomplish it. That's what it is. May God destroy us if we don't destroy him. But Paul, he's in the fortress, okay? Paul is surrounded by probably a thousand soldiers all in all. How are they going to get to him? Well, they approach the Jewish council, led by the high priest, and they solicit their participation. Call for him and and say you're going to examine him more thoroughly. And before he gets to you, we'll knife him in the back. A conspiracy, to murder Christ's apostle. Why? For simply preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. For preaching that salvation is not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ alone. That's why. You can't earn your way to heaven. Christ, God's Messiah, is paid it all. Unto him we owe. He's paid it all. That's what raises all the animosity. This way is very narrow. Broad is the way. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And how many go that way? Many. Well, I say God is like this. Oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That's the broad road, friends. You reject Jesus is the only way. You're on the broad road. Repent. Enter the narrow road. Straight is the way, narrow is the gate. Very few go in that way, which is the only way. So, these religious chief priests, these elders, notice they don't pause and say, no, 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 guys, that's not a good idea. Because if we do that, we violate the law. You can't murder a man that violates the decalogue of God. Thou shalt not murder. You don't hear it. (laughs) These, These Jewish men who are allegedly zealous for the law, they want to transgress the law, kill the man. Good idea. Good idea. See, the violence that is in the heart of the natural man, the unconverted heart, his hatred, his animosity towards the gospel, Okay, make no mistake, is venomous, and there's always something satanic about it. You know the people who smile on the news, and they deride or mock Christianity? Satan is entangled in all of that. Spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He's behind it all. Because he knows his time is short, so he goes after God's people. So here you have assassins teamed up with these aristocrats, and then all of a sudden we see an unsuspecting ally. Notice. Again, again, God's providence in action. Verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, What? Paul has a sister. That's what you're telling me. The <laughs> Apostle Paul has a sister. He's got a nephew. Okay, in 13 epistles of the Apostle Paul, there's no mention of a sister or a nephew. This is the only place we see it. Amazing. Now, we do get the impression through the writings of Paul. That because of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, um, he lost everything. Philippians 3, I have suffered the loss of all things. And that probably includes family members. Now remember, he was the son of a Pharisee. And in all likelihood, would have been disinherited, cut off because of Christ. We don't know for certain, but it's most likely the reality of his life. A man who was ostracized. Your family, they'd never speak to you again. No birthday cards. Cut off. Done. Don't bother visiting home. Christ divides. Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword to divide a father from a son, a mother from a daughter-in-law, and so on. Christ divides, but he also, uh, why are you here today? He unites. The true Christ, he unites. So we don't know if this sister was converted. We have no idea. Either way, blood usually, not always, but usually is, is thicker than water. And here, the, this nephew hears about this ambush, and he goes and he informs his uncle Paul. He's allowed in here, a little prison visit. And then the Lord uses this young child to accomplish his sovereign purpose in and through the life of Paul. He ensures his providential design for the Apostle Paul, his providential design for the gospel to continue on. So he brings warning of this ambush through this little boy, and the fact that he takes the little boy by the hand reveals that he must have been young. Just a lad takes the boy by the hand. So the Lord here uses this boy because God has plans. God has purposes. God has work that he's going to accomplish through the apostle Paul. He had work he was going to accomplish through the prophet Jonah, amen. Amen, witness on the right, left. That's right. His will will be done. So, whether they were believers, that is the sister um, and the son here, we don't know. But God here uses family connections to, to foil the conspiracy and to get Paul away from this danger that's stirring in the city of Jerusalem. You know, you also have to admire the honesty and integrity um, of this Roman captain. He could have dismissed this boy's message, but he didn't. He could have listened to the lies of the Jews, but he didn't. Instead, he did his job faithfully. And oftentimes, beloved, God's servants are helped and protected by honest unbelievers. Right? God's will will be done. And he'll use people who aren't part of his new covenant people for his glory and for for the good of his people. So here then after exposing the plot comes the prevention of the plot. Verses 23 to 25, he called to him two of the centurions and he asked and he said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. This is amazing. Notice, with, with 70 horsemen and, two, and 200 spearmen, they were also to provide mounts to, to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. You know, I, I know people who, who, who've had personal bodyguards, one, maybe two. The president, I don't know how many he has. Paul, 470 mighty men. (laughs) This commander is wise. Okay, this Gentile commander is very wise, knowing that although he might be able to slip Paul out the back door, he also knew that these rabid assassins would fight to their death and he didn't want to have to explain the assassination of a Roman citizen who's under his protection. 470 mighty men. You lose this prisoner, it could cost him his life. So he outfoxes the assassins and the Sanhedrin, and Paul is, is led out of town, surrounded here by 470 and soldiers. He looks more like a king than he does a criminal. It's amazing. And his enemies are back in town with hunger pains. <laughs> hunger pains, and, and he, he's not even in town. They, they vowed something that will be impossible to carry out, because God's will will be done. You're going to Rome, Paul. I promised you that in verse 11. That's why he's cool, calm, and collected. Showing us once again, this little event right here, this shows us once again that God works in our lives in very amazing and sometimes amusing ways. Right? Amusing ways. Verse 25, a letter goes out. It describes the issue, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He stretches the truth just a bit, <laughs> right? He almost had him flogged until Paul said, Ah, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. So he makes himself out to be somewhat of a hero, typical move of a politician. Verse 28, in wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. But I was informed that there would be a plot against the man. I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Anapatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered a letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he read it, he asked from what province he was, when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So what, is, what do we see there? A platform, a platform has once again been set for Paul to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to the foremost leaders of that area that is Caesarea, this little stop. He'll be able to preach Christ once again. Now, it's going to be two years, two years before Paul arrives in Rome. But God's providence, is it ever in a hurry? No, it's never in a hurry. As a matter of fact, speaking of God's providence, I received a phone call from a friend of mine who I met him in prison, when I was doing ministry in prison. (laughs) In 1997, that brother has been in prison for 37 years. When I first started preaching the gospel to them, he, he, to, to him, he mocked me, but he loved me. He liked me. And, uh, um, long story boring, um, four years ago, I get a phone call out of nowhere. Or let me back up. Let me back up. He was transferred from Donovan State Penitentiary um, up to, um, up north to, um, What's what's the granite wall, of the famous prison of Folsom? Thank you very much, Folsom Prison. So I, I fly all the way up to Folsom because he said, Johnny, I'm now in level two because of good behavior. You can come visit me. We can sit at a picnic table and we we, we can talk. He wasn't saved, not a Christian. And uh, well, by the time I fly all the way up there, he, he got he got busted on the yard with drugs and they threw him across the street into the level four new prison, put him in the hole. So years passed, I hadn't heard from him. I get a phone call about four years ago. He says, Johnny, is this John Leader? I said, yes, it's John Leader. Johnny, Johnny, I'm saved. God saved me. Amen. Yeah. And then he was up for parole later the next year, and he was turned down. And I was thinking to myself, we'll see if his faith is real or not. And indeed it was. Called me yesterday, 37 years in prison. Looks like he's getting out in June. He said, I can't wait to sit at Pacific Oak Church. God's providence never in a hurry, but we preach His word faithfully. Amen? Hopefully, you get to meet Him someday soon. His promises, they're never in a hurry, but He gives you what you need what you, the day you need it, not before. Not after, it's grace for, grace for today. There's some radio ministry that goes by that name. (laughs) He's not a bad preacher. (laughs) So God said, Paul, you're going to testify about me in Rome. And in the process of carrying out his will, notice, notice, in the process of carrying out his will, That is, you're going to preach, testify of me in Rome. God does not cover Paul with some invisible shield, does he? Does he? No, he does not. God involves human agents, non-Christians, Romans, half a cohort, cohort a thousand, half a cohort, almost, 470 mighty men. Okay, if God says... He's going to get Paul to Rome. He's going to get Paul to Rome. Amazing. So he uses an army to get him to his first stop right here in in, in Caesarea. What do we see here, friends? God's fingerprints. Read the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. We see God's fingerprints on everything he does throughout redemptive history to a disobedient prophet by the name of of Jonah who deliberately, deliberately, let me say it one more time, deliberately ran in the opposite direction of God's command. God's will was done. God's will will be done. God sovereignly overruled the little human will of Jonah. Because, as we read in the text of Jonah, salvation is from the Lord. It's not from man. Salvation is from the Lord. His message comes through man, and Jonah, you're my man. Go preach my word. No. Oh. Yes. And he appointed children. What did he appoint? Not a whale. It's not Jonah and the whale, but it is a fish. An appointed fish created by God to to swallow this man. And make no mistake, he literally swallowed him. If he didn't, Jesus is a liar. Show us a sign, prophet, you who proclaim to be the Christ. There's no sign that will be given to this generation. You're all wicked. There's only one sign you'll be shown. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign. Take heed. Ooh. Amazing. Think about this. The Lord God Almighty gave a vision to a young lad by the name of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, And it's this that we read. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars will bow down before him, before Jonah. Meaning, one day, Joseph, your family, your mama, your daddy, and your brothers are going to bow down before you. Yet, God did not inform Joseph how that would come to be fulfilled. Amen? What do we see there? In the pages of scripture, we see the secondary cause. We see the secondary cause of jealous brothers who sell him off to Ishmaelite slave traders for 20 shekels of silver. That's the secondary cause, not the primary cause. Because the primary cause was almighty God the vision will come to pass. We read this in Psalm 105 and verse 16. God, at and about that time, called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread and he sent a man before his family, the Israelites. Seventy or so at that time. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Primary cause, God. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested Joseph. Primary cause, God. Secondary cause, his jealous brothers full of animosity who, who sold him off. The slave traders. God's sovereignly, sovereignly decreed will being worked out by way of his providence. Joseph's life here in, in, in Paul's life. Remember, Joseph, he was a spoiled teenager who received a special, very unique robe from his father and it stirred animosity within his brothers. And God used it. He used the animosity, he used their venomous hatred for them to sell him off to Ishmaelite slave traders because God's will will be done. He goes on to be the second most powerful man in Egypt. God uses these wicked brothers, he uses a pagan ruler. Once he gets down to Egypt, he uses Potiphar, Potiphar's wife and all of the evil there and then he rises to be the second most powerful man in that mighty empire, and God set it all into motion. And years later, from the vantage point of time, we remember what Joseph said to his brothers when he revealed his identity: "You meant it for evil; God meant it for good. He meant it for good." You take Daniel; Daniel taken off into exile for 70 years. The secondary cause? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon who besieged Jerusalem, the primary cause, God, who decreed it and who, we read in the scripture, gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, primary cause, almighty God. Secondary cause, wicked men. You know, God promises heaven to us, amen? But he doesn't tell us how we're gonna get there, right? Now, we know we're gonna get there through Christ alone, through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, but we don't know the manner of suffering, tribulations, trials, and the kind of death that we will face, amen? You know, R.C. Sproul used to say, I do not fear death at all. But I do fear dying. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to die. Am I going to die of painful cancer, car accident, whatever it may be, great suffering. But I do not fear death itself. Because for me to be absent from the body is to be present with my Lord. You know, I have hanging on the wall of my study um, the words of William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a mysterious way, nicely framed print from one of my sisters in the Lord. It says this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, ooh, but sweet will be the flower. Friends, that was written by a man who had a mental breakdown. And in those days, when you had a mental breakdown, they put you in an asylum. While William Cooper was in the asylum, he was converted to Jesus Christ. And he met a dear, kind woman who took him in, cared for him, a very happy time for Cooper, who who, who suffered with great bouts of depression trying to commit suicide actually when she died he was devastated nevertheless through her death he met pastor John Newton together they wrote incredible hymns together we we just what did we sing this morning number 202 amazing grace written by John Newton and together they would Produce some of the greatest hymns that we know. Oh, oh, the depth of hymns. Amen. Hymns are a commentary on scripture. Nowadays in churches, you know, um, you have mood mood lighting, not moonlighting, mood lighting, fog machines, and a bunch of wannabe rock stars. No one up here is a wannabe rock star. They're here to lead you in worship of Jesus Christ. Hymns, be they new or old, are a commentary on the word of God. Amen? Cooper, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain in time. Amen? He's always on time, but it's not always according to my time, let me tell you that much, to be honest with you. Praying for things over, you know that guy in prison, I prayed for that guy for years, and then when I least expected any kind of contact from him, he tells me he's saved. (laughs) I'll be honest, I think I had stopped praying for him, it'd been so many years. Pray for loved ones. And it's like, Lord, when? How long? How long? It's like the psalmist. How long, Lord? In my time, son. In my time. Divine time. Okay, Lord. So in the midst of life's uncertainties, beloved, we do not always understand why. We do not always understand how. Did Paul know why? Did he know how? No. He, that wasn't his responsibility to know the why or the how. What was his responsibility? As is our responsibility? To live by? Faith. 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 To live by faith. Realizing that God's sovereignty, this attribute of God being absolutely sovereign over all things, all times, all places, all people, expresses for us God's right to sit on his throne and carry out his decreed will. This is what we're reminded of, to live by faith. And sovereignty sanctifies. In time, sanctifies his people, carried out by way of his providence. As Charles Spurgeon said, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Or, as Augustine wrote, beloved, trust the past to the mercy of God. Trust the present to his love and the future to his providence. That's faith. Trust him. But what about all the heinous crimes in the world? What about all the evil? What about that 737 that crashed into the ground this morning, killing all on board in the continent of Africa? God's on the throne. Heinous crimes? Consider those. Well, we consider heinous crimes by considering the most heinous crime of all time, and that was the killing of the Son of God divinely decreed before time to be carried out in time and on time. The murder of the Son of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, truly God, truly man, as a man on this earth, committed himself to the perfect, sovereign plan and will of his Father. And his comfort, his trust was the attribute of God the Father's absolute sovereignty. What about in the garden when he said, Father, 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 if it's possible, let this cup of what? Wrath pass, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he got up and he went to Calvary to bear punishment for your sin. And mine. Bearing God's wrath. And while Jesus was lynched by religious leaders, they broke all kinds of laws. They broke every law there was. The Sanhedrin, they were not to hold trials at night, but they did. God's will, what? It's being done. The death penalty could not be declared on the day of the trial, but it was. Law after law after law was broken. They weren't even to meet the Sanhedrin, they were not even to meet on the eve of the Sabbath to discuss a capital case, but they did. Didn't they? God's will is being done. False witnesses were gathered and heard. Nevertheless, God's will was being done. He was exposed, exposed to blows during the trial. That was against the law. But they did it. God's will was being done. So all of these Jews who were concerned for for the law in Jesus' case as well as Paul's, they abandoned those laws to murder the Son of God and wanting to now to murder his representative, the Apostle Paul. Jesus, who was calm under pressure because of God's sovereignty, knowing that his father is faithful, Paul understood something of this. He's calm under pressure because he knows Jesus, the Son, the Father, presence of the Holy Spirit, are faithful, working all things together for his Is good because he loves God. Same is true for you. Same is true for you. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So notice this as I wrap up, this account of Paul, back to Paul now. Notice there's there's no miracles. No signs, no wonders, no mighty deeds. But what we do see is the primary cause of all things, working things out by way of secondary causation here, ordering circumstances in the lives of all of these people, shifting scenes, shifting people to accomplish his will. Paul, you have testified to me, of me faithfully. In Jerusalem, you also testify to me in Rome, and you're on your way. This is amazing grace. Just amazing. God is no less at work in your life, beloved, in your circumstances, whatever they may be, to bring about his purposes, to bring about his will for your life, for his glory, and ultimately and finally for your good. It's ultimately for God's glory, but in the process, it's your good and mine as well. Amen? Amen. Amen and you can take rest in the fact that he is your refuge and he is your what strength if you're here and you're not trusting Christ for your very soul and eternal life he's not your refuge he's your judge all judgment is the sons don't ever say jesus doesn't judge my friends he is the judge and he will judge the wicked Well, I'm not wicked. You don't believe Jesus is the only way to the Father? You're wicked. Repent and entrust yourself to the one who came to bear the wrath of the Father in place of sinners like you and like me. And you'll be saved from his justice, from his just punishment, from his wrath, understanding that Jesus took it in your place, and you shall be saved from that judgment. And he then, the Son, becomes your refuge and your strength. Repent and believe, and you shall be saved. Father, we thank you for your word and encouragement to all of us in the midst of struggles, pain, uncertainty. Help us, each one of us, to live by faith. Grant us what we need so desperately and bring to saving faith every single soul who's hearing this at this moment, whether they're here or somewhere else, listening online, whatever the case, bring them to saving faith, I pray, for your glory and the good of their soul. Amen.